One of the great deceptions and false teachings of our day is spiritualizing away the reality of the coming kingdom of God. By that I mean the reality of its implementation on earth as a form of government which will regulate economic, social, everything, policy, politics. There's still going to be people, there's still going to be authority structures, there's still going to be human nature. But we'll deal with it in the kingdom of God. The true gospel of the kingdom proclaims that there are indeed real-world solutions, solutions that will work if implemented. And if implemented, they will lead to a peaceful and a just society on earth. That's a big part of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. These solutions, and this is the part where we get you know, to the point where people don't necessarily like the answer. The solutions are found in submission to the commands, judgments, and statutes of God. That's the solution. That's the ultimate solution. And the righteous rule of God's chosen king, which is Christ alone. Now, the, the false gospel, the one that I alluded to a little bit, the false gospel teaches you that, that your destiny is to fly away to heaven. And that's all you're working for. And that you're just going gonna to leave it all behind, and you're going to float away to heaven, and everything's going to be peachy. And uh, you'll just leave the earth behind with all its nasty problems. And the real solution to the problems on earth is to just go somewhere else. <laughs> That's one of the things that I find very weak and dissatisfying about that whole way of looking at what happens after death and what, what, are the future, what does the future hold and what is the, what is the promise that is given to people and what is the promise of the kingdom of God is not to run away from the problem. It is to fix the problem. That is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Not that the, oh, well, God created this earth, and it was never really meant to work anyways. It's just here as kind of like an obstacle course for you to learn some lessons, and then we all run away and live somewhere else. That's not how it works. Very often that same false outlook is very much tied to or a rejection of God's law, you know, it's teaching that God's law is done away, you know, it's, it's a curse, it's useless. So put those two together, and why should we ever think of God's law, God's commandments, God's statutes as putting forward real-world solutions that are meant to change society? In our country, we are about to enter into a new political season. You know what's coming. And you know, the last one was no fun. It was very unpleasant to listen to and to watch. There's going to be a lot of wrangling. There's going to be a lot of angry words. And uh, it's going to be a big spectacle. And it's really just going to be another sad example of humanity trying to figure out how to govern itself using nothing more than its own reason, its own ideas, its own imagination, and not looking to their creator for solutions. Our purpose today is to review what I'm going to call the political position of the Church of God, which is, in a nutshell, the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the rule of God on earth. Let's start with the Messiah. Based on what we have in Scripture, 
a very natural way to, to think of a Messiah, the Messiah, is in political and economic terms. Or, in other words, answering the question, how will humanity be governed? How do we achieve peace? How do we achieve a righteous uh, society? When Mary was told that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, she had a song. You can turn there in Luke 1. She had a song, and its song tells us about the way she perceived this news, what she was thinking when she was told, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. Go to her, uh, that'd be Luke 1, verses 45. Let's start at 46 and read through 55. She bursts into a song and says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She was a nobody. She was a low, low on the economic scale. Even in that, you know, she had to take the submissive position in, in society. But she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So when Mary was told, your child is going to be the Messiah, that's what she thought about. And notice what she's focusing on. She's talking about the economic issues and the social issues and class issues and society structure issues and like and stuff like that. Now go to Luke 3. And uh, we'll just hop, skip, and jump here through some matters of this whole designation as Messiah. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus' commission, if you will, as Messiah says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. This is Jesus' formal commission as Messiah, coming from the Father, and uh, announced through the power of the Spirit. The words from the Father actually point us back to very well-known prophetic statements. One from the Psalms, one from the prophets. Go to Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, and you will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is the reference that's being made there. People were pretty Bible literate back then, and when you said something like that, they knew what you were talking about. Isaiah 42 is the other place I'd like to go. So Jesus was not commissioned merely to reign in the hearts and minds of people. He was commissioned as a king. To rule, rod of iron, nations, people, king over all humanity, 
governing ruler. And with that comes all the political, the economic, and the social ramifications. Uh, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. This is another place that, you know, if you check your little chain notes in the Bible, it will point back to this, and it's fairly well known that this is the, another one of the references being made in that statement. Here is my servant who I'm up, I uphold, my chosen one whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He's not a rabble-rouser. He's not leading a riot parade down Wall Street. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, even the islands, the faraway lands, put their hope. Jesus was appointed to bring about justice, a just society. Not to turn people into dreamy-eyed mystics who would just sort of take it all into their heart. Yes, we need to have a change of heart and a change of mind. We'll get to that. But Jesus' appointment was to bring about a change in society, not to lead people like a Pied Piper to an escape from reality. And that's the, king, that's the message of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Go back to Luke where we were. We were in uh, Luke 3. I'm going to kind of stick with Luke for a bit here. The next thing that happens, I, I, I'm actually not going to turn to the scriptures because it would take a bit too long to walk through them uh, verse by verse. I'm going to talk about the temptations. You've heard about the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, right? I, I'm assuming we all know about those. Uh, if you haven't read them, well, uh, you can read them on the side. I'm going to kind of whiz through them here. Jesus had received his, his commission. Okay, he had been given the commission as Messiah, uh, the leader. But he was still in the flesh. He was God, made flesh. And as a person, as a flesh and blood human being, he faced temptation. Choices, if you will. He had to make choices. And uh, some of those choices were interesting. Uh, the temptations that Satan presents during the 40 days in the desert, I think you can. we can all see them as uh, various tempting ways to operate as a worldly leader. One, Satan said, turn these stones into bread. Okay? Use the great power of God to provide free bread for everybody. What would happen if you could provide free bread for everybody in this country? <laughs> They'd love you, right? Yeah. Uh, take care of the physical needs of the people, feed the masses, and they will accept you as king. It's a temptation. I am going to give you, I'm going to take care of your physical needs, and people will, you know, accept you as the ruler. And Jesus' response to that was, man does not live by bread alone. That is not how we learn the submission and the mind of Christ I mean, you think of the example of Israel when God provided them bread from heaven. It didn't really change their minds so that they became willing to submit themselves to the law of God. It didn't work that way. Let's see. Uh, the next thing that Satan said, bow down to me and you can be king. 
right? That was the second of the temptations. Bow down to me and you will be king. Well, what he was saying in some ways was, okay, what, what about if you buy into the system? Because I run the system, Satan. You buy into the system and then you can change it from within. I'll give you the authority now. You can do all the good you want. You can be part of You just have to become part of the system and you can change it from within. Let's do it that way. And uh, seizing secular power, well, that, that would have been possible. But Jesus replied, no, we worship God and serve him only. To seize political power that way, to, or to you know, go with it and go you know, with this whole, oh, okay, I'll accept this satanic system and kind of work within it and fix things, would have meant that Jesus was acting according to his own will rather than the will of the Father who has a distinct timetable for when these things will come to pass. And he would have been kind of jumping the gun, and he would not be obedient to the will of God. The third temptation was, okay, throw yourself off this high tower, and the angels will swoop in, and, and, and you'll be like, uh, like one of the Avengers. you know, <laughs> Right? That will blow people away. All right? Give the people signs and wonders. Rule as a holy man, wielding supernatural power. That would probably work, wouldn't it? You'd, you'd get people's attention. And Jesus answered, no, you do not put God to the test. Meaning, I, I believe, the goodness, the righteousness, and the justice of God's way is not understood by accepting or witnessing miracles. That is not what they accomplish. They basically get people's attention. <laughs> but being convinced does not happen through witnessing miracles. People have to be convinced by making a sober choice and then following through on that choice. That's how it works. That's how it works. Jesus went through these temptations, which were all basic ways you could approach being a, you know, a worldly leader. The next place I want to take you in this, uh, you know, the development of the Messiah, if you will. The Messiah goes public, okay? The Messiah goes public. For that, turn to Luke 4 and verse 14. The testing in the wilderness comes right before this. And then in verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, for recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is basically his, you know, his, this is what he leads with. <laughs> All right, this is, the Messiah goes public. Jesus told the people, basically, I am the prophesied one. I'm the prophesied one, the anointed king, and included in that was a proclamation, which I believe is very, very, if you take it as, as it was said, it is a proclamation to people who are poor, for example, that they would be freed from oppression. That's what he says. 
Jesus does offer us freedom from sin, death, but he's clearly speaking here in terms that people would hear as making social statements. That's how people would have heard it at that time. And I think that's a good way of looking at it, especially when you wrap it into the package deal of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. But what he was saying, how he was saying it, and how people would perceive it was definitely coming about or coming out as a promised or proposed solution to humanity's political, economic, social problems. I want to deal with this stuff. That's what he was saying. For example, he's talk, he talks in here about something, another one of these things where people knew what he was talking about. You, you might not. Maybe you do. But uh, when he said the year of the Lord's favor, does anyone know what that refers to just by chance? Anyone? Okay. He's talking about, he's talking about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. That was basically how it would be described. He was talking about part of God's law. Part of God's law. The acceptable year, the year of the Lord's favor, however it's written in your Bible, is about the Jubilee year, which is, you can read about it in Leviticus 25. I'll, I'll try and you know, really boil it down for sake of time. It's a law that reaches very deep down into the entire structure of society. Economic, social, property ownership, everything. And basically takes what we do now and turns it on its head and it is an answer, one of the big answers to some of our big problems. It is a law that deals directly and decisively with economic disparity, for example. And, uh, you know, every 50 years, all the debts that people had incurred, you know, maybe they sold off their inheritance and so forth, were dissolved. Everything was done, you know, blank slate. And actually... There was also a seven-year cycle within the 50 years, but the Jubilee system was about dealing with economic disparity. Ancestral lands would be returned to the family and so forth. Go to uh, Isaiah 49, uh, verses 8 and 9. Rather than going into Leviticus 25, you can do that on your own. I, I find it fascinating. Just think through, how would that work? In Isaiah 49, we see this in a prophetic setting. Verses 8 through 9. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, in the acceptable year of the Lord, time of God's favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness be free. That's a reference to the Jubilee year. Ancestral land returned. We're going to deal with the problems of economic disparity. People who had sold themselves into servitude to pay off their debts. It was released. This is what Jesus was talking about, and this is how people would have heard it. I take this as saying, well, here's an example, kingdom of God example. Implementation of the Jubilee year will become public policy during Christ's millennial rule. Now the Jubilee was, was, was if you think about it, that's, that's hardcore. <laughs> that's hardcore. If you really read it, and wrap your mind around it, and think what that would mean. It is a hardcore economic policy built into God's law, 
which acts as a financial reset button. Anyone ever played Monopoly? Okay, who has not played Monopoly? <laughs> okay, I think you've all played Monopoly. What happens? How do you win Monopoly? Someone gets more and more money until they get enough that it just becomes an inevitable juggernaut that crushes everyone. I find Monopoly to be one of the most fascinating games ever invented because it is so much a microcosm of economics. Because that's how it works. That's how it works. Jubilee gives it a reset button. You know, you can be playing, okay, we're going to play Monopoly for three hours, and then we're going to reset. Bing! Oh, that was a relief. Whew. I mean, it's a, I'm oversimplifying, but if you think about it, yes, that's how it works. That's how it works. Uh, they were they were hardcore. You know, without the Jubilee, basically the rich just keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer and there's no solution. And over the millennia, our solution for situations like that has been revolution, war, um, or just, you know, laying down and accepting the gnawing uh, despair and injustice. In fact, the Jubilee was so hardcore that uh, <laughs> neither Israel nor the Jews ever were willing to put it into practice. They never did it. They could never do it. There's no record of them ever keeping the Jubilee year. And most, you know, looking into history, no, they didn't do this. And if you read through some of the prophets, especially the prophets, when they're talking about, you know, what's happening toward the end, it comes up a lot. You're not doing this, and this is causing problems. Part of the prophet's message. And at Jesus' time, there was a lot of poverty. And there was a lot of economic despair among the people of that day. They were being taxed so hard that they had to borrow money to pay their taxes. Basically, that's what was happening. You know, they'd own a piece of land. They didn't have an income tax. They had a tax tax. You pay this, doesn't matter how much money you make, you pay this. Sometimes people had to basically go into debt to pay their taxes. Well, that just creates this terrible cycle, and they end up being a, a serf. People were big. They were, they were not happy campers when Jesus was talking to them. That's not the scenario. Uh, There's a lot of despair, poverty, and he was addressing some real-world problems, and he was giving them the solution. Now, a typical interpretation of Jesus' statements is to spiritualize them away and say, well, that's not what he was really talking about. Um, what he's really promising is spiritual riches and uh, spiritual release, you know? That's, that's what he was really talking about. But the people of the day, people were hearing it at that time, they were oppressed, they were impoverished, and they would have heard this as a proclamation of social reform. That's how they would have heard it. Now, at the same time, the rich and the powerful of that day would have heard these same statements that Jesus was putting out there, proclaiming social reform, and uh, they would have had a different take on it. I mean, to the poor... It was offering hope. You know, the crowds were following him around and saying, man, this is great. This guy's awesome. The rich and the powerful heard the same message. And what was their response? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. What did they want to do to this guy? Kill him. You got to deal with this guy. This is causing problems. Now, the Messiah did something. Jesus did something. While he was saying all this, he did something. He made a move to establish a new social order, a little 
Okay, we're going to start living a certain way in a new social order, which is in the world, but not of it. Go to Luke 6, 12 and 13. Jesus went to a mountainside to pray one of those days, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, who he also designated as apostles. The selection and the appointment of the 12 was the laying the foundation, if you will, the very beginning of an organization. I mean, he's coming across like kind of, you know, I say, who's this guy doing? He's creating sleeper cells. You know, he's preparing for complete takeover of the world. He started an organization. He appointed these 12 people. That was the beginning of a new society, new Israel. And the members of this new society were going to begin training. Begin training for the day when Christ returns. So that they may assist him in his new government. When we think about training, when we think about what we do now in the church, we can sometimes, I think, spiritualize it all the way or be overly spiritual about it. But today's spiritual training, the things that you learn now, are meant to be applied in the kingdom of God in a very real way that will affect people's lives, their pocketbooks, <laughs> how they live. Let's take one of the paramount spiritual qualities, forgiveness. Okay, Forgiveness. When Jesus is teaching about forgiveness... He actually prevents it, presents it in the context of financial debt. He uses that as the way for them to wrap their minds around the idea of owing a debt. And he talks to them about forgiveness. God uses the concept of debt in scripture quite often. And it is, by what God tells us, it is a terrible social evil. It is something to be avoided. <laughs> avoided at all costs is the root of all kinds of social evils and personal evils. It's a root of oppression, sin, fear, insecurity, and so forth. And when he teaches, let me give you a, just a very short example. Go to Luke 11, where spiritual pr principles are presented in these like real-world application ways. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer here. This is not the one that you're accustomed to from Matthew, but it's the same sort of thing keeps us in Luke here. In the Lord's Prayer, okay, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, if you're reading in the King James, it says debt doesn't it? The word there is debt. Oh, the, the people that we have a debt to, forgive us as we forgive those who are in our debt. He's talking about very spiritual principles, but putting them in this financial kind of setup. One of the parables that talks about forgiveness is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Do you know... You know the parable I'm talking about? The guy has, he owes big bucks to the king. He goes to the king. He seeks forgiveness for his debt. 
He's forgiven, and then he turns around and starts shaking down the people that owe him money. Well, he's talking about a very spiritual principle, and we read that and we say, well, I need to be forgiving to you and so forth, because, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a very spiritual principle, but he's putting it in this box of money, economics, stuff like that. Work with me, I'm getting to a point here. Forgiveness is not only a recipe for interpersonal relationships. Yes, we need forgiveness to have a good relationship, you and me. Forgiveness will also be the pattern for society and government and economic policy in the kingdom of God. A very spiritual principle will be used and applied very, very liberally across everybody, across the entirety of society. When Jesus establishes the rule of God on earth, forgiveness will be the pattern for economic reform through the year of release, the Jubilee. That's all about forgiveness. That's, it. That's how it works. It's a, an example of forgiveness. So we see this spiritual principle, which we learn now in small ways, personal ways, but they're going to be the way of thinking that makes the kingdom of God work. Successful economic Social policy and that will be based on spiritual qualities and priorities. That's how it will work. If humanity were to accept the ways of God now, we could avoid a lot of heartache. <laughs> we could avoid a never-ending cycle of war and revolution, oppression, uh, generational poverty, things like that. And God says, God thinks this too. He says, in many, many places. I'm not even going to try and go to them all. Oh, yes. Would that they would turn to me in that way and be healed. If only they would turn to me in that way and be healed. But they won't. Let's look at a couple of examples where that... I mean, there's plenty in the prophets. There's plenty in the Old Testament. We're just going to stick in Luke, though. Luke 13, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus said... Leave this place. Herod wants to kill you. Remember I was saying how the rich and the powerful <laughs> had it in for him. They wanted to kill him. And he said, well, go and tell that fox. I'll keep, uh, I will keep driving out demons, healing people today and tomorrow. Um, I'm going to keep, keep doing what I'm doing. Now drop down to verse 34. I think that's where I really want to be. Verse 34, it says, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Oh, no, I should have backed up. Um, no, oh, that's the right place. Sorry. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So he's thinking about the people in the city, the great city. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. You won't do it. Go to Luke 19 and go to verse 37. This is when Jesus is entering Jerusalem and the people are cheering him and their palm fronds and throwing their garments down before him. It's, you know, it's a, it's a big parade and acclaim and social, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, let's read verse 37 says, uh, when he, that's Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem, so all this is going on, he sees all this public acclaim, man, this guy's great, this Jesus guy, he's really awesome, and think of all the things that he says, and he's going to change it all, and it's all going to be great. And he approaches Jerusalem, and he saw the city, and he wept over it, and he said, if, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, the day will come upon you when your enemies will build out embankments against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, dash you to the ground and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on the other because you could not, did not recognize the, the time of God's coming to you. So the crowds, you know, they were cheering, they were pumped up by the miracles, and uh, they were really excited about it. One of those miracles was actually, you know, feeding the 5,000. They'd heard about that. This guy, man, he's amazing. And uh, Jesus heard all the shouts of acclaim, and he wanted to do good for them. God wants to do good for people, but the problem is they won't have it. They won't do it. They won't do the things that fix the problems. So how, how, how will this work? And Jesus had an opportunity right then. I suppose he could have said, yeah, let's lead the charge on Jerusalem and take it over right now. And they would have all ran after him. But he did not because he was not going to jumpstart the timetable of God. Now, I mentioned Jesus, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And he'd done that you know, as an act of compassion. And at that time, they'd also wanted to proclaim him king. An example of that, well, feed these people and they'll love you. But he wouldn't do it. He refused that temptation even then. And he returned to the crowd the next day. If you read through it, and you can get a better taste of it in John 6. He returned to the crowd the next day, and he told them about what was going on. He said, stop focusing on thinking about and working for the bread that goes in your stomach and keeps you alive for a day. And that's it. Instead, seek the body and the blood of the Son of God, which is sacrifice. A sacrifice that reconciles you as an individual to God. Yeah. But it's also a way of thinking, a sacrificing of yourself, a giving up of certain attitudes and ways of doing things. You just have to give them up. And that's the food that nourishes the way to eternal life. And it's very spiritual, I know. It's a uh, way of renewal and transformation of the mind, which is also a renewal and transformation of the society on earth. That's where it begins. Now, for those of us who God calls, it also means that we, when we accept the Son, when we accept his sacrifice, we submit ourselves to the will of God, it calls upon us to make a, to make a stand. We have to make a stand. We have to make a statement, if you will. We do. We're obligated to do that. It's one of the things God expects. Even if taking that stand threatens your life. Even if taking that stand threatens your career or your friendships. So in addition to thinking about your own salvation, Jesus is asking you to take a stand with him in proclaiming the kingdom of God. Proclaiming with him the coming of a new society. And preparing yourself for it now. Let me give you an example of taking a stand in the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. You're actually making a statement right now. You're making a statement right now. 
the observance of the Seventh-day Sabbath is a social stand. The Sabbath is a very public statement. I think I went over this last time I was here. It's kind of on my mind, I guess. It's a very public statement of your relationship to society. It is. It sets you apart. Keeping the seventh-day Sabbath sets you apart. It affects how you manage your personal calendar, how you manage your career, does it not? How you manage your pocketbook, your finances. Not, you know, other, other commandments from God affect you as well, but Sabbath is a stand. It's a stand that you make, often at considerable cost. It costs you something to keep the Sabbath. And it's a stance that indicates your love of God's commands, his judgments and his statutes, the laws, judgments, and statutes that will govern the 1,000-year rule of Christ. It's a stand that says, I have that heart in me, or I want to have it in me. I have that heart in me. I'm with the program now. Now, at some points in history, and I think we did cover this last time, taking a stance like this, could get you killed, could get you persecuted, get you in trouble. And uh, today, actually, what you're most likely to get is made fun of, mocked, told, you're a religious nut job. Especially if you start talking about the coming kingdom of God and that you're going to have a role in it. Talk to someone about that. They'll set you apart. Ooh, he's a nut. <laughs> You know, for some people, being made fun of, marginalized, mocked, is worse than death. Well, that's kind of how it's working right now. Uh, it can change. Let's go to Luke 14. Go to Luke 14. And verse 25. You've heard this scripture before, I'm pretty sure. And everybody wonders, what does this mean? How do we interpret this? It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and they turned, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. At that time, at that time in, in society, and I think it still applies very much today, it's a little different, but at that time in history, a person's religious connections, uh, their political connections, their economic ties, and everything that kind of bound them into the society was based on their family, who they were when they were born. And, uh, you know, beyond that, today we have the same thing. You know, people talk about their tribe. We have their, you know, people talk about their race. People talk about their nation. And they have these ways of viewing themselves and their connections, but the real core of them is family. And Jesus cuts to the core. He says, even that, I want you to think about this. Your connections to society, even the basic fundamental ones, like your own family, your flesh and blood, I want you to think about those things. I want you to think about them. And it is a call. It is a call to make your commitment and your connection to God and his agenda more important than all your other connections. Your connection to your family, your parents, your children, wife, husband. Your connection to God and his agenda. That's what he's looking for. Because all those other things, well, 
Mm-hmm. They can be good. They can be bad. But he's looking for commitment. Commitment. That's what God's looking for. And Jesus is calling you, or has called you, to a community. Community that's the foundation of a new society, really. Not based on birth to family or your tribe or race or nation or anything like that. But based on a voluntary commitment. It says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus did not have to die. He could have slipped away. But he made a conscious decision to take upon himself the cross. He thought about it and made the decision and he did it. And he did it. He's asking you to do the same thing. Not asking you to get up and die on a cross, but to make a stand in society. That's what Jesus is asking of all of us. So I mentioned that the, you know, the beginning of this new society is the church. And uh, through the church, Jesus has begun this community. Okay? And the goal of the community, if you listen to the message of the church, the gospel of the kingdom... The goal of the community is actual real social change on earth, not about flying away to a la-la land somewhere else. It's not a call to withdraw into some kind of a personal feel-good zone. You know, Jesus makes me feel so good. I'm not saying he won't make you feel good, but that's not your calling. It is a calling to learn. It is a calling to learn servanthood, sacrifice, Endurance in the truth, sticking with the program, faith that is learned through perseverance in suffering, in setback, and in trials. What do we learn? What do we do in the church? There are a few things. They seem really simple, but when you've been around long enough, you realize that these are some of the things that really mess people up. One, you have to accept that the church has a visible structure. That's really hard for some people because <laughs> you don't have to submit to it. Church has no hold on you. None whatsoever. But it's an acceptance and it's submitting yourself to a visible structure of fellowship among one another. Uh, the church is all about making a sober decision to commit. Now, many of us have done that. Now our job is to stick with it. And that commitment and and that decision are powered by the belief that the cost will be worth it. That's what hopefully keeps you rolling along. Also, we accept a different lifestyle. And we're not talking about doing anything freaky, I don't think. But Sabbath, the holy days, tithing, stuff like that, it changes your lifestyle. It does. You're called to a different kind of lifestyle that sets you apart from prevailing society. It just does. We're in Luke. Go to 22, verse, uh, chapter 22. And take a look at verse 25. This is when the, the disciples were getting pretty excited about stuff. And they saw, man, this is really coming to a head. And they started arguing among one another about, well, who do you think is going to be top dog in the kingdom of God? You think it's going to be me or you? You know, and, and I've heard people speculate about this kind of stuff before. You know, well, so and so is probably going to be in charge of X, and well, I think, you know, I think so and so would be a better, you know, to be in charge of this and that. And it's the same stuff the disciples were doing. Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus comes at him 
And he says, um, all right, let me read it from verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be considered to be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. And instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the least, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Depends on your perspective. Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood with me in my trials, and I confer upon you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he wanted to make a few things clear to them. And in some ways, this is another restatement of Jesus' political agenda, if you will. You want to put it that way, if you will let me. If all he meant by this was, if, if all he meant by his teachings about the kingdom was just spiritual stuff, okay? If it was just all supposed to happen in your heart, you know, accept the kingdom of God in your heart, which is basically, you know, like I mentioned at the very beginning, one of the great false teachings about the kingdom of God, right? That it just takes place in your heart. If that's all he meant by it, if that were true, if they're right, we're wrong. Then why didn't he correct them? Why didn't he fix the, well, you got you guys don't understand it. You're not getting this right. He should have corrected their misunderstanding. Well, this isn't real. This is just like an imaginary thing, guys. No, he didn't. He didn't reprimand and he didn't correct them for assuming that he was coming to rule on earth at all. Or that they would have a part in it. He basically said it over again. Yep, you're going to have a part in all this. What he did reprimand them for was misunderstanding the nature and the character of that coming new order, which is marked by a different way of thinking. What he drove home. Jesus never taught that spiritually minded people have nothing to say about what they see going on in the world. I think we stumble over that sometimes because of, you know, comments that are made about what we see going on around us in the world. Jesus, Jesus never told that spiritually minded people have nothing to say about what's going on in the world around them. And many of the things that he said, I think we've gone through a few of them, would actually be perceived as politically provocative in his, in his day. What he didn't do was take sides. Everybody hated him. Because <laughs> he didn't take anybody's side. All he gave them was the truth. Truth of the kingdom of God. And so, you know, the, the powers that be were like the Sadducees, the Sadducean priests, the Pharisees, Roman officials, the Jewish monarchy, and all of them who were bitter enemies managed to get together and work together and orchestrate his execution. They all worked together to get rid of this guy because they were afraid of what they were hearing. They were afraid that this was all going to happen in their day. That would be terrible. Why? Why do you think they felt that way? Yeah, because they wouldn't be the ones in charge anymore. Or they would have to change their thinking, their way of thinking so radically they couldn't wrap their mind around it. 
I mean, what, what are they, from their perspective, Jesus could have been a rev- he could have been talking, he's talking revolution. He's talking about a political takeover. Well, they can't have that happen. Now, Jesus had options. He had, he had some options. Like I said, he, he chose to take the cross to, to die. He had options. The night before he was arrested and executed, Jesus prayed. Right? He prayed, and he asked God, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, he asked God, is there another way? Is there another way we can do this that doesn't involve me suffering and dying? And that's what he, he, he was praying about. And he was working through, I believe, working through the same temptations that we talked about earlier, the same kind of temptations. And what were his options, really, if you think about it? Have you ever wondered about that? What would happen if you know God had said, okay, work it out a different way? Well, here are some options I think it might have played out like this. One, he could retreat. So he could, he could take it all back. He could say, oh, hey, you know, sorry about all that stuff. Um, sorry about being so provocative and coming across like that. I mean, yeah, the stuff, the stuff I said, well, it wasn't meant to be taken literally. You know, it was meant to be like, you know, uh, to indicate a spiritual state of mind. He could have done that, couldn't he? Okay, cool, that guy's not a threat. But he did not, right? He didn't do that. You know, if he'd done that, well, what, then he, after that, I mean, what could he have done? I guess he could have gone off and he could have been some kind of uh, great teacher, some holy man somewhere. And if he'd done that, we wouldn't be talking about him today because he'd just be another person in the, you know, the stream of history. His other option, what, what else could he have done? Well, he could have grabbed the opportunity and said, you know what, this is just, too ripe, I've got to grab it. And he could have seized the opportunity for political power then and there, and he could have tried to enact a revolution, or maybe he would have joined one of the parties. He could have become one of the Pharisees, or he could have joined the Herodians and worked within the system, and with all the power and wisdom, he, man, he could have made big changes in society, right? Could have done amazing stuff. You know, basically a, a practical takeover. But it would probably play out in one of the scenarios that we talked about with Satan's temptations. He'd end up having to give everybody free food or, um, you know, dazzle them with miracles all the time. Um, basically, those scenarios would be how it would play out. And then he would live out his days in the flesh, right? Because he was in the flesh. He would die. He'd pass away. And then everything would basically go back to the way it was. Right? That's what would happen. He had a third option. Go for it. (laughs) The only good option was to stick with God's plan. Do the will of God. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 52. This is when Jesus is being arrested. This is like, it's coming to a head now. You know, once you get, once you get handcuffed, once you're in the, once you're in the system, it's, it's done. And I've known people where that's happened to them. Yeah, once you're in the system, it's just like being caught in a treadmill. Your hair is caught in a treadmill. You're dragged into it and you can't get out of it. So they come to arrest him. And uh, one of the disciples has a sword and he pulls it out and he cuts a guy's ear off. And, and then in verse 52, Jesus says, this is, put the sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Don't you think I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? You don't think I can handle this? I want to. 
telling him, this is my choice of doing this. And just by saying that, he's kind of showing he knew the options. They were in his mind. I don't have to take this. I could call 12 legions of angels. I could do everything I want to do right now. But he didn't. And then he goes on, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? He's sticking with God's plan and he's doing the will of God. He chose the path of servanthood and sacrifice and perseverance in face of trial and suffering. And he made that choice at great personal cost. Greater than you or I will ever pay, probably. The cost of his own life. And that is Jesus' political position. That is your political position. That's the position of a person who is a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. Submission to the will of God. That's your, that's how you fit in. <laughs> that's how you fit into society. God has a plan, and God's plan for social reform marches on. And because of Jesus' submission unto death, God's program can move forward because his sacrifice opens the door to forgiveness. Forgiveness and the payment for sin. It's not the whole plan. That's not where we stop, but that's where we begin. Again, with forgiveness, forgiveness of sin for people like you and for me. And he's made available the spirit, which is the power of God, can be at work in you, which allows you and helps you to grow and develop the mind of Christ, which is a new way of handling relationships, whether they be personal relationships or social relationships, even economic. You're learning about all this stuff in little ways. As, as God says, learn these things in small ways so that I can give you everything. Doesn't he? And Jesus is the beginning of a new social order. And he has called you to participate in it. So consider yourself an ambassador of Christ. First and foremost, an ambassador of Christ. A representative of the new order. The new order that is to come. And I talked a little bit about what's coming up in the next year. Be careful. Be careful out there, okay? Be careful and don't entangle yourself too much in this world's ways, its attitudes, and even its proposed solutions. You won't change it. And most likely, it will change you and it will corrupt you. That's probably what will happen. I'm not saying it has to, but that's kind of how things roll. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all things will be given to you as well. That's what God says.